0: Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find, only at Total Wine and more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, be 21.
1: The whole cookbook, which is probably several hundred pages, has maybe four recipes.
2: My personal favorite was one titled, Be Bold with Bananas. This was a cookbook I couldn't put down. I will make my duck confit for the rest of my life using this technique. It it is indeed
3: horribly graphic. It sounds totally weird and disgusting, but it's actually kind of magical. Hi, and welcome to Burnt Toast from food52.com, which is a podcast about what we all talk about around the stove, at the water cooler, in the office. What doesn't make it onto the website, but what we're all talking about all the time, otherwise, or a bar awesome. cart, <laughs> <laughs> or around the oven. <laughs> the I'm Meryl Stubbs, and I'm one of the co-founders of Food 52. I'm here with my co-founder Amanda Hesser. Hello. And joining us today are Kenzie Wilbur, who is our managing editor at Food 52. Hi. Uh, food writer Charlotte Druckman, and great pal of ours as well. Hi. Food 52 alum, Marion Bull. We've just recently lost her to Sever, where she's the digital editor. Trader. <laughs>
2: I, I still love you.
3: <laughs> and today we're going to talk about cookbooks. What makes a good one? What makes a not so good one? Ones we love. We even asked our readers to send us some of the weirdest cookbooks that they've ever seen. So we'll be sharing those with you towards the end. So Amanda, do you want to start us off? I think we are in the golden age of cookbooks. Like I think they've
1: never been they've never been better and I feel like publishers are taking risks. Like I was looking at this cookbook that we got yesterday which comes out of a place called Franklin Barbecue in Austin. And the whole cookbook which is probably several hundred pages has maybe four recipes. But what it does have outside of recipes is it tells you he, this guy tells you how he builds his smoker, like all the mechanics of it, the science of it. He tells you, like, every detail that's in his head that he knows about barbecue that makes his barbecue so good that people are, like, waiting in lines outside of his place in Austin. And I feel like people are allowed to be extreme. Like, they don't have to kind of, like, check a box and have 100 recipes anymore. It can, they can be experts. People crave
3: expertise and kind of niche topics. And it's made it so much more interesting. And the medium is so much more flexible, I think, too. I mean, he also has tons of diagrams in that book. Mm -hmm. It's like literally blueprints for how to make your own smoker.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I think cookbooks are allowed to be a lot more narrow now. I mean, one of my favorite books of late is Peter Miller's Lunch at the Shop, which is just it's a single subject cookbook. Um, And it's very small. There are only 50 recipes. But why I think he's so successful is because he doesn't feel like he has to cover, you know, 50 different topics but at the same time, are we are we worried about the fact that there's five books on our desks every single week? Do we think that this mushroom cloud of really great cookbooks is like leading to too much saturation? Like, I wonder well, if they're are... are they all really great. Right. Totally. Like, I think we could all safely say no.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I think you would look at statistically that whenever there's a craze for something, it means that there are more great. Books. They're also more bad books, and so whatever that ratio was originally when when it was a smaller market is probably the same.
1: So wait, what's one of your favorite cookbooks, and can you? One of my favorite. Yeah, tell us cookbooks.
0: why. So the cookbook that's on my lap right now is um, Salty by Caroline Fidanza, which I think Charlotte also brought in. Um, and one thing that I really love about this book, which I fell in love with, because Salty is a sandwich shop in Brooklyn that I used to live around the corner from and they make truly excellent sandwiches, is that everything is very well done. It's nicely laid out. The pictures are lovely. The recipes are appealing, but it feels very sort of specific and of a place. It's almost the opposite of an all-purpose cookbook of, uh, you know, Canal House cooks every day, which is another really, like, lovely personality-filled book. It is not, you know, 10 ways to roast your chicken and every steak recipe under the sun and a number of cakes and cookies – it's pulled from a menu and and from a place and has this very like strong sense of personality that isn't going to totally transform your kitchen to make everything fit this identity of salty, but it's going to sort of like pepper in its own personality into little parts of your cooking. So it's like its own world. Yes, it's like exactly. it's bringing yeah exactly.
4: I would also say that it's you know when you talk about just a cookbook kind of having. An idea or focus and then executing it perfectly. I think we see a lot of cookbooks where it's a great idea or a great personality, but it's just not as well executed as it could have been. And this book, I mean, you really could compose the best sandwiches of your life, but you're also on the way learning to make pickles. There are recipes for eggs. I mean, there are, there are things about it that are practical, but... As Marion said, it really feels of a place, but it also really feels of a spirit. You look at this and you feel like you've been to the shop and you've hung out with them, and their vision is just so well articulated. And I think because so many people now use cookbooks as a branding tool, it's a great example for someone who's trying to represent themselves
2: in book form. I love Salty. I think it's a wonderful book, um, and I think it's really well executed and agree that it's very of a place. But that sort of opens up this question I have about how we feel about a book with a lot of recipes where you need sub recipe after sub recipe to complete the the, the eventual recipe. Um, Tar- Bar Tartine's new book is is one that comes to mind with this sort of trope that you you know in order to execute this dish and and make your kitchen feel of a place you have to complete six different recipes with ingredients that you know you have no idea where to find or you need to mail order them and. Does does that make a good book? And are we okay with that? And are we okay with that? You know, a little bit here and there. Well, a book that I love that was like that is the Bouchon cookbook.
1: Like, I never cooked from the French Laundry cookbook because it was sort of that, like, on steroids, and I was just never going to be straining stock five times. But Bouchon, it ha- you were yes, you were often referred to things, but I, I feel like I learned, you know, techniques that I have never seen before in other mm-hmm. cookbooks, like you know the the duck confit, for instance, usually with duck confit, you know, you're just uh, mixing herbs and salt and then rubbing it on the duck. And what Thomas Keller does is he actually puts them in a spice grinder. And so you end up with this very bright green, like, mossy colored salt that you rub on the on the duck, and it infuses the duck so much more with that herb flavor. And it was the kind of thing where, yes, that was part of a recipe that probably had, I think, two to three other components, none of which I was going to make, but I will make my duck confit for the rest of my life mm-hmm. using this technique. And I think that, that there is usefulness, but I think that you have to have the kind of confidence or savviness to be able to break
3: apart recipes. So it's mm-hmm. definitely not... Weeknight cooking. Well actually one of the books that I brought, even though I'm it's a little I'm a little behind the times, is Urban Italian by Andrew Carmelini. And one of the things I love about it is just well, first of all that the first thirty pages are just like stories about his life. And I, I just love his sort of like relaxed attitude in introducing all the recipes and, and and I think he does an interesting thing with this where he gives you options. So it's the 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 recipe on the cover of the book is actually the only one I've made so far. Um because I was so excited by it. It's it's gnocchi with a lamb ragu. You, you made it because it has a dollop of fresh ricotta on it. Yes, but I didn't it. actually include that.
2: Let's be honest.
3: Mara yeah, loves cheese. Um, it's true. Uh, but I, what I really liked about it is that when you get to the, the lamb ragu page in the book, it's very clear from the photo that There's also a gnocchi recipe that's linked to it, right? If you want to do the gnocchi, you can, but it's not like gnocchi with lamb ragu and here you have to do all of these things at once. It gives you the ragu recipe. It says, you know, serve it over your favorite pasta or head on over to page 95 to make gnocchi yourself. I don't know. I really appreciated that. I felt like I was being given permission to either do the whole thing or if I wanted to just pull out a box of dried pasta and... You know, when I got to the end of the ragu, like kind of call it a night. Right. Not and I, ma- I did make the whole thing. Actually, I was pretty pretty proud, but I didn't feel like I had to. You didn't right. feel judged. I think, by yeah. Exactly.
4: <laughs> that brings up something interesting. Just in that, you know, it's a cookbook written by a chef who has a restaurant, but he and he's thinking like a restaurant chef, but then he's translating it for someone at mm-hmm, home. Totally. And that doesn't always happen. I mean, to go to the French Laundry cookbook, and it's okay because it's the French Laundry, but you do get to that question of when a chef writes a cookbook, who is that chef writing it for? And if they are writing it for the general cooking public at home, sometimes there's a gap. Um, I brought similarly sort of an earlier prototype for that. Um, The first cookbook I really... Learn to Cook on, not one of my mom's cookbooks and not watching someone, but it's Mario Batali's first cookbook. Simple Italian food. And one of the things that he really taught me how to make risotto and to make it confidently. And it's not a very complicated recipe, but what I like is he offers four seasonal recipes for risotto and none of them is typical. So I think the first one I did was his green apple risotto. And again, you think, why would I ever make green apple and and risotto together, but I'm going to trust him. But also to to all of you guys talking about ingredients, it's not hard to get green apples. It's hard to think of putting green apples in risotto, but it's not hard to get them. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's kind of like with the duck confit too. It's that kind of thinking and then walking someone through something in a way that kind of protects its integrity as being simple that I think is just wonderful because that makes you want to cook.
1: I think it's interesting that we've mostly talked about chef cookbooks.
3: Well, I have The Polar Opposite as my other favorite, which is a, a community cookbook from the 1960s Ooh, called Forum Feasts, which I actually think a lot of people secretly know about. It's a crowdsourced cookbook, which is obviously sort of a concept that's near and dear to our hearts at Food 52. So, And it looks like it was like typed on a typewriter. It literally, yeah, mm-hmm, I think it was. It could not be simpler. I mean, we talked a little bit about sort of vague instructions and things like that before we started recording. And this basically just assumes a basic understanding of cooking, first mm-hmm. of all. I think it's, you know, a community of of mostly women who were all very accustomed to cooking. And it's very simple. You have things like quick chipped beef, uh, sloppy joes, and then chicken tetrazzini everyone's favorite <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but um one of my favorites actually is really really interesting it's it's a chocolate cake it's it's made in a pan just a rectangular pan and but it has dried fruit in it and then it has an amazing confectioner sugar and orange juice and orange zest glaze it sounds totally weird and disgusting but it's actually kind of magical
0: Meryl, this is a book that you love. I think that Fanny Farmer is sort of written in that way of, Mm -hmm. you know, having somewhat like somewhat basic recipes, particularly in the baking section, which is sort of the section that I turn to the most. But it it's clear, but it also sort of assumes that the reader knows how to cut butter into flour or how, you know, how to prepare a pan for sauteing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There's
3: no extra Handholding,
2: And I think, you know, the way things have moved with our cookbook renaissance sort of in publishing, I think we have started to assume um, absolutely no level of cooking expertise, you know, from the reader. Everything needs to be super precise. And if it's wrong, we, you know, people write in or we see this on the site all the time, people commenting because the cake wasn't the exact shade that we described or, or what have you. So I think it's sort of gone the other direction.
4: I actually have a problem with that.
2: Um, I mean, I th- I'm serious. I, th-
4: I think there's <laughs> a really, Tell us how you really yeah, feel. <laughs> I think there's a happy medium. I mean, I think the fact that we don't see those community cookbooks anymore is an indication of what people talk about as being some, you know, generational gap of people who no longer cook at home and so i understand as as writers of recipes and you know describing food in copy that we write we always have to now presume no one knows how to cook or knows anything but i think at some point when you assume people know nothing they believe that they don't know anything and so the the one thing i wish we could give back through cookbooks and i see it happening but it just seems slow is enough confidence to improvise, to know that if your cake doesn't look right, it probably still tastes good, or how to fix a mistake that you made. And I wish that, you know, Even when I get assigned things and I have to write recipes, what I'm told to write and what I want to write are not always the same thing. I would rather tell people why they're doing something. I would rather describe the intended effect than, say, about two minutes because two minutes on one person's stove is five minutes on someone else's. Mm -hmm. And you do. You have people who are now slaves to just watching their clock. And they don't know what they're mm-hmm. really looking for. So. Or using we we're using an iPad timer. Yeah. We were I talking, like talking about this earlier
1: today in the office because there was a cheesecake recipe that was my, my mother's that was baked. And it looked totally different from her version. And it reminded me of when Gourmet Magazine did, they took some cake recipe and gave it to like 20 professional bakers and then took a fo- did a photo shoot. And it, every one of them looked totally different. You know, and because of the variances of their kitchen and their styles and their interpretation of instructions. And
2: like that should be a good thing. Sort of reminding me of that um, really great Melissa Clark article where she was like, if you make one thing and it doesn't quite come out, you know, call it something else. Um, if you make <laughs> a pie and you totally mess up the top crust, cut it in pieces and call it a pan and serve it anyway, giving the cook a little bit more power than they had before. Yeah. Julia Child said never apologize. That's what parsley's for. so good
3: so I feel like we've been talking mostly about cookbooks that we like and we're all skirting the uh other topic of ones that maybe have been a little bit disappointing as Charlotte sort of got to before Charlotte I'm I'm sorry I'm going to put you on the spot but I was very curious when you said uh, you know there are books that have a great theme or you know purport to have a a great topic, and then you find yourself disappointed. And I was wondering if you had any examples. I actually
4: brought one today that in some ways is one of my favorite cookbooks and in some ways I think is a complete fail as a cookbook. Ooh, um, this is very exciting. Bring it out. (laughs) And it's one that we all talked about, I think, at some point. Um, It is the Mission Street Food cookbook, and I'm actually really happy to have it here just because I know that there will soon be another Mission Street Chinese cookbook. So glad to be able to say that there was one that came first. Um, What I love about this book is that it really told the story of what they say is an improbable restaurant. It is so personal. It's done in a he said, she said. It's really, if you talk about a cookbook, you just love to read. This was a cookbook I couldn't put down. But I never want to cook from this cookbook. I didn't want to cook from it while I was reading it. Uh, there's a point where I think in order for a cookbook, if it's called a cookbook to be successful, it has to make me want to cook. Mm. Even if not the specific recipes in the book, it, it has to make me want to get up and cook. Really? Um, I don't I don't know if I agree it, with that. That's I feel I feel like that it just it has to inspire me at some point to think I want to make that or oh this makes me think I want to put these things together or just kind of gets that like your creative juices flowing. Amanda, I want
1: to Wait, hear more about why well, you think. I just
4: agree. think like I I it doesn't I don't feel
1: like cookbooks have an obligation to inspire. Like I think entertain, amuse, inform, but I feel like a resistance to the kind of functionality of a cookbook. Mm, really? um, yeah, like I, I mean, when I think about how many cookbooks I have versus how many ones I actually cook from, I mean it's sort of an embarrassing. You know, division, ratio. yeah ratio, <laughs> and
0: um, to your credit, you have a lot of books. <laughs> that is
1: true. <laughs> it would be impossible. to cook all of the cut books that you have. Maybe it's just that I'm a pack rat. But <laughs> well, um,
4: what do you do yeah. with the other ones, though? Like, I, I use some of mine for research more than cooking. I'm wondering of the ones yes. that you have. What
1: I like to just page through them sometimes. You know, and um, I find them kind of comforting. Or you know, I um, lately I've been. I've been interested in Indian cooking. And so I've been like opening these books that have been on my shelves for a decade and I've done nothing with. And in those cases, yes, sometimes I'm looking for recipes, but sometimes I'm just kind of trying to get a a feel for the cuisine, particularly with recent cookbooks. Like the Roberta's cookbook was just like, I mean, we we actually do make a recipe from it all the time. And I highly recommend it, the garlic dressing. So good. Um, (laughs) Which is like a staple Mm -hmm. in our fridge. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, I feel like it's a huge win for a cookbook if they have one recipe that you continually make. But even I'd be happy with that cookbook just as a kind of a snapshot in time of the New York food culture and these sort of band of outsiders who decided to open up this kind of freaky restaurant. And then it became this huge hit. And I don't know, it kind of like warms my heart that that exists and that it's distilled into a book.
4: I have a a question about that, which is just to ask, who would you recommend that book to?
1: Well, yeah, it's not a mainstream thing, right? I, I would probably buy it for someone who doesn't, who like loves food and, uh, but doesn't live
2: in New York City. Yeah, someone with a peripheral interest of of the food scene in other places, but not necessarily, you know, I don't think that book is really meant to be taken into the kitchen and whatever we say, dog-eared or, you know, what have you. I, it's meant to be read as a, as a book.
0: I think the question of audience is very important because going back to the, the idea of chef cookbooks, my sort of I would say opinion on chef cookbooks has changed. It's really like what Charlotte said before: a question of whether a book is achieving what it set out to achieve. If you, you know, if you're writing a really chefy cookbook and you're not concerned about people cooking from it, what is your objective, and are you are you achieving it? And I think, like to your credit, Amanda, the Roberta's book achieves. I think, what it set out to achieve. We've been talking so much about
3: cookbooks that are a window into a certain person's tastes and or a world of a restaurant that are very specific and very individual. I'm wondering, do you all feel that this means that there's really no room for sort of the comprehensive joy of cooking kind of cookbook anymore?
0: I think it's relevant. I just think that if a new one comes along, it has to be worth its real estate, if that makes sense. Like, I don't, I don't think that that's never going to happen again I just think that just as you know with so many cookbooks out there are only so many great ones I think that in order for an a sort of all-purpose cookbook to really be worthy of a place next to the joy of cooking or the New York Times cookbook or I or I think the canal house book even needs to sort of you know it's the the constant question of presenting old ideas in new ways or all-encompassing ideas in new ways.
2: We're also sort of seeing, you know, smaller versions of books that make up a larger encyclopedia, right? So I use Deborah Madison's vegetable literacy as my, like, joy of cooking for vegetables. Mm -hmm. If I have something and I don't know what to do with it, I know that she has the answer. In the Charcuterie is a great one for for meat, although some of those recipes are a little complicated. But it's sort of like we're building our own, you know—
0: that's a great point. of cookings. Cooking. Chez Panisse vegetables is another mm. good place for that, too. Good call. She also has—wait, I want to talk about this. She also has a <laughs> recipe. This is Alice Waters has a recipe for a champagne tomato salad in which you marinate fresh, perfect summer tomatoes in champagne, and then you serve them with more champagne on top of them. <laughs>
3: How can you not like that recipe?
0: <laughs> Why do they say that, she, you know, her food is
1: rarefied
2: and elitist? I don't get it. Edible
4: schoolyard, edible schoolyard. <laughs> that's,
2: that's one of those books that still makes you want to cook, even though there are really any pictures. It's sort of, you know, a series of drawings and, and whatnot.
4: Mm. Not to embarrass you, Amanda, but my answer to this question would probably be your New York Times Cookbook?
1: That's why we but, invited you, Carol. Yeah, <laughs> <living. laughs>
4: we yeah, seated did that question. question. Walk right into it. <laughs> if someone said to you, I'm just learning how to cook at home. Mm. What cookbook should I have? I mean, you might want to tell them to get a comprehensive cookbook, or maybe not, maybe you'd sort of do what Kenzie, what you're talking about, but where would you steer them? What books would you tell them to get?
2: Well Genius Recipes cookbook coming out <laughs> I spring actually, of twenty fifteen by Food Fifty Two. I think that's a great idea. But Amanda, I want to know, do you send people your own book? <laughs> Keep that to myself. <laughs> She's very humble about
0: that book.
3: We've been talking about a lot of books. And if you would like a comprehensive list of all the books we've, we've talked about today, we're going to have one for you at www.food52.com forward slash podcast. So check that out. And now we've got sort of the final segment of our podcast, which is a little bit different. We have a hotline on our site where you can ask any food or cooking question
1: and get answers from our uh, very passionate audience. And so <laughs> <Opinionated>. we <laughs> tossed them a question for this segment, which was, what's your favorite weird slash strange cookbook and why? And now Kenzie is going to tell us their weird and strange answers.
2: So combing through these answers was honestly the the brightest spot in my day so far, aside from sitting here with you all. Um, our community had some really fantastic answers. I'm going to call out a couple that were especially weird and or popular. So Donna called out a one of our users on the site called out a cookbook called White Trash Cooking. Um, which I have personally never seen, but a lot of other people on the hotline had. We have we have five people sort of jumping in and agreeing, um, calling out recipes from that book called Things like Kiss Me Not Sandwich, um, which is made up of bread, peanut butter, and onion. Um, How, did they? Did anyone mention? I think there's one where it's like pretzel nuggets that you pour into a glass and then top it with coke and drink it (laughs) nice (laughs) my personal favorite was one titled be bold with bananas um (laughs) (laughs) there's a specific topic for you (laughs) um evidently it was put out by uh the new zealand fruit board as an as an incentive to get people to buy more bananas do they even grow bananas in new zealand i I, at one point maybe it was a failed experiment (laughs) (laughs) um Anyway, so our user Whiskey Mead says um, it's a beautiful time capsule of 1970s cooking horrors, including the particularly ill-advised banana candle. Um, <laughs> so, I did, so I did some Googling. Well, first, like, what do you think the banana candle is?
0: There are so many ways that that could go. I mean, you could actually try to make a candle out of a banana. Yeah. Or you could have, oh, you know what would be cute is if you sort of plated them up for everybody. Is cute the word? You, yeah, so it's like, a, it's like a kid's party. Like, you plate them up on those little plates, and you have, like, the st- straightest part of the banana that you can find. And then you put a little thing in it that would look like a wick, so maybe like a... Uh, uh, Marion, did you author this
1: cookbook? No, I, I think, I'm thinking that you would do that, but then you stick a birthday candle oh, down into yeah, it so yeah. just the wick is showing, showing, and then you light it. Maybe you dip it in chocolate It's
4: a paleo first, birthday so cake. That.
0: <laughs> but
4: I have a good idea now, <laughs> because I am thinking if you split it like, you know, like a banana split, uh-huh. like a boat, yep. and you put in just a whole bunch of almost like little toothpicks, and you also had sprinkled sugar on it first and then you lit them all they would caramelize they would brûlée just the be banana. like a boat yeah and it would
0: be some banana or you candle could, of- you could slice it into discs and they could be tea lights so-
2: yeah. <laughs> and you could float them out onto the river in a vigil Okay, so actually, I have some bad news, um, because all of those things sound quite good. But in fact, Charlotte's first answer was probably the closest. It, it is indeed horribly graphic and um, quite phallic. But what it is, is you, you take a banana, you peel it, you split it in half, you take a toothpick, put it on the bottom, and affix it to a ring of pineapple. You have to make sure, evidently, that you are lining the base of this with a lot of sort of weird leafy greens. This is the best part. <clears throat> you drip two. Drip is a quote, by the way. The recipe says then drip two tablespoons of mayonnaise down its sides. <gasps> oh. Oh, oh, that ben, Is there a visual <laughs> in the book? <laughs> um, I have one here. If you'd like to take a look, I, very, we could, we could put small. this up on our page as well. I think <laughs> yes. seems very important. Yeah. That if you any of see you this. listening want to see the <laughs> banana candle, head to food52.com. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll we s- should do a GIF. <laughs> I think we should. <laughs> it might get taken down by the authorities. It's pretty grotesque. Um anyway, Whiskey Mead, bless your soul. That was a that was a golden answer. Thank you um, for that topic. Totally. Um so my so my last favorite is uh, a cookbook called uh Manifold Destiny. The subtitle of which is The One, the Only Guide to Cooking on Your Car Engine. Oh.
4: That's kinda awesome though. It's kinda practical maybe. You get in trouble. So, so But, like, would
3: you eat that? Would you eat that? Meryl, would Personally, you eat? would I eat it? Probably not.
4: You, are you
2: covering it though? Yeah, like do you line tin it
3: foil? with? I think usually yeah. you put stuff in tinfoil, right? And you almost use it yeah.
2: as a as a grill. Yeah. So the user who submitted this answer said he actually tried it out um, baking an apple on a drive to his sister's house about 20 years ago and it worked pretty well. So maybe they are onto something.
3: I feel like there's a
2: there's a very definite link
3: to camping food here. It's like there's there's definitely sort of like a crossover, which is Amanda's favorite topic because she likes to camp a lot. Oh yeah, <laughs> so That's gonna be my next. I'm sure book. you've cooked on your car's grill before too, <laughs> <laughs>
2: on my zip car. Maybe
3: we should Urban Maybe we should gift you cooking. this book,
2: um, and you can and you can learn to how to make s'mores on your Scion, poach fish in your Pontiac, even bust out a gourmet snack from under the hood of your Escalade. This is from the front of the book I'm reading <laughs> verbatim. That is a great um, blurb. Pretty great. <laughs> So if you have any favorite cookbooks, weird or otherwise, we want to hear about them and uh, we want to see them. So Instagram them and hashtag them with the name of our podcast, Burnt Toast. That's B-U-R-N-T-T-O-A-S-T. And we're going to regram our favorites.
3: Please let us know what you think of the show. Our Twitter address is at food52, and you can email us at editors at food52.com. If you like the show, make sure to tell everyone you know and subscribe to us on iTunes. Our producer is Henry Malofsky. For Kenzie Wilber, Marion Bull, Charlotte Druckman, I'm Meryl Stubbs. And I'm Amanda Hesser. And we'll talk to you next time. This podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.